0: Now would you open in your Bibles to the little book of Ruth in the Old Testament, sandwiched in between the book of Judges and the book of Samuel, Ruth chapter 1. You're already there, some of you. Let's pray. Lord, we're your people. These are your words. What a great story, short, but very poignant, applicable, revealing, wonderful. Lord, some of us have perhaps never even read this book before, others of it are very familiar, but you have something that you want to teach each and every one of us. Because we all need to grow, and there's room to grow in every one of our lives. We pray that we would. We pray, Lord, that You would develop in us an excitement about the way You move, even though we don't always understand, we can't always see, that we would live believing that not only do You rule in the affairs of mankind, but You overrule when we make mistakes. This book shows us that, Lord. Help us to glean those lessons in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two books in Scripture that are named after women, Ruth and Esther. Very significant books. Those are two of my favorite books. I know I say that about every book, but really (laughs) great stories and very similar in the sense of both being stories of deliverance. Ruth has a great picture of how God uses ordinary people as part of his plan to deliver a nation and the world from sin. Esther is also a beautiful picture of deliverance, as God had her in just the right place at just the right time to do just the right work. Esther was a Jewish woman who married a prominent Gentile named Ahasuerus. Ruth was a Gentile who married a prominent Jew named Boaz. Very interesting similarities. But the book isn't just about a woman. It's really about a family, at least at first. It starts with a family, a family that made some choices, and then it will sort of zero in on this one Gentile woman from Moab named Ruth. It's a great story. You know, television always has stories of families. Not always, but there are certain families that stick out as, as being uh, television families. The Brady Bunch would be one of them. The Partridge family. The Adams family. The Beverly Hillbillies. The Simpsons. These are family series. The Book of Ruth provides the kind of fodder that is necessary for a, a great miniseries on television. I would call it the prodigal family, if I were naming the script. I think that adequately describes the family of Elimelech, Naomi, and uh, their sons as they move from Bethlehem to the area of Moab. The prodigal family. In the book of Ruth, it's filled with intrigue, drama, romance, just like all those other sitcoms, et cetera. The only difference is this is real and it's clean. That would be the only difference. That's probably why it wouldn't be aired on television. Now, at first, the story begins with a family, as I said. And so you start reading the first few verses, you think that it's going to be a story about a man and a woman and their two sons. Then as the story progresses, it looks like it's going to be about a woman and her two sons because the husband dies. Then as the story progresses, it looks like it's going to be a story about a woman and her two daughters-in-law because her sons die. Then as the story progresses, it seems like it's going to be a story about a woman and one daughter-in-law named Ruth. Then as the story progresses, it seems like it's going to be a story about one of the daughters-in-law, a woman named Ruth, and a man named Boaz. And then when you get to the whole end of it, you understand that it's all part of the story of Jesus Christ and his redemption because of the genealogy and how David is mentioned in it. And so the lineage of Christ comes through this family. The the story of Ruth is a great story of providence, and we've already covered what that word and concept means, but just how God sovereignly takes events in our lives and weaves them together for his glory and for our good. It's that great tale and example of Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. We know that. Elimelech and Naomi didn't know that at different pieces and different Events during the story. But when they look back, they must have thought, wow, isn't God amazing? God really did work that together. Great story of Providence. It opens with a choice. And uh, actually, in chapter one, there are several choices that uh, need to be mentioned. First is the choice of a man named Elimelech. And we're going to read, and you'll see the choice that he made. It was a dumb choice. It was a choice to leave the land of promise, Bethlehem, and go to a Gentile territory which he was forbidden by Jewish law to do, the land of Moab. But he made his choice. Second is his wife Naomi's choice to stay there once her husband had died. Not a good choice, but after all, Hubby brought her all the way here. Now they're sort of settled, so she stayed. Third is the choice of the two sons, Malon and Chilion, to marry Moabite women, forbidden by Scripture, forbidden by Jewish law. But they did, and God will overrule that and override that and weave it beautifully together because of a conversion that happens. And then fourth, there is the choice, and this is a good choice, for Naomi to return back home to Bethlehem where she left. It's also the story of Redemption. In fact, one of the key words in this book is the word redeem. I'll give you two key words right off the bat to look for, redeem and kinsman. Now, kinsman is if you have an old King Jimmy translation, relative if you have a new modern translation like the new King James. Redeem and kinsman, the Hebrew word you will find out much later on is goel, the kinsman redeemer. And it's a portrait of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament who came to align himself with us to redeem us from sin and buy us back to himself. It's a story of conversion, how a Gentile woman, woman, singular, comes to faith in the God of Israel. In chapter 1 you will see her make that commitment to the God of Israel and cut all ties with her past and surrender her life to this God. And so we'll see a picture of The truths of the New Testament foreshadowed in the Old Testament. St. Augustine used to have a little saying about this. He, He said, the new is in the old contained. That is the Testament. The New Testament, the new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. And you will see seeds of the New Testament truths of redemption contained within this little Old Testament story. Who is the author Of the book of Ruth. And some look at it and go, Ruth, because her name's on top there. It says the book of Ruth. Probably not. Whoever it was, and by the way, we don't know who it is. And uh, it's funny how there are books filled with arguments on who wrote it. I don't care who wrote it. Must have been a contemporary with King David, however, because David's name is mentioned. So David was probably reigning on the throne at the time it was written. My hunch, it was Samuel that wrote it. He seemed to be a prolific chronicler of some of the historical events and to show how the piece of the puzzle of the genealogy of David fit together. Probably this book was written after he arrived safely upon the throne before Solomon was king. Verse 1, it came to pass, or now it came to pass, in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. That verse is the setup. It gives you a little bit of background. It tells you, first of all, it was the time of rebellion. How do you know that? Because it says it was when the judges ruled. And you remember the book of Judges. It hadn't been that long ago. What a creepy book that was, wasn't it? The time that the Judges ruled. Dark days morally and spiritually for the nation of Israel. And uh, that's why I'm so glad Ruth is in here right after Judges. And it's probably good to read Judges first to refresh your memory and then read the book of Ruth because you go, ah. it's this little island of, of reprieve in the middle of this moral anarchy in the time of the Judges. During the time of the Judges, There was apostasy. That is, Israel was falling away from allegiance to the living God. Second, they were experiencing attack, wars by different people groups that wanted that vital piece of territory, the land bridge between Egypt and Mesopotamia called Israel or Palestine. The Philistines were occupying the southwestern portion of the territory and they oppressed the children of Israel continually. The Moabites, which are east of the Jordan River, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you see they're directly east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the Midianites, and the Termites, no, I'm just kidding, all <laughs> oppressed the children of Israel. They had enemies on every side during this time. And it seemed that every time they were oppressed, God was doing it to get their attention. So they'd kind of wake up. And they cry out to God, but then they'd quickly sink back into a place of just lethargy, crusomatic. Stick your spiritual life in neutral and just coast. That's what happened. During the book of Judges, remember the cycle we kept reading about called the sin cycle? There were four, at least, if not five, distinct phases of this cycle of history that I find also not confined to the nation of Israel, but it happens even in in, in our own lives. There was the cycle, first stage, rebellion. I want my own way. I want to do my own thing. I don't want God to be in charge of my life. I want a little more freedom. So they rebelled against God. So God let them have their own way as they were worshiping the gods of other nations. God let them become slaves, eventually, of those other nations. So after rebellion came the second phase, retribution. Then as they're suffering the consequences of the retribution, third phase, repentance. God, I'm sorry, please, I'll never, ever, ever do it again. Heard that before? Children say that. And then because God is a good father, restoration. God brings them back. God puts them in their land, raises up a judge, a military leader usually, to defeat the enemy, brings them back to a place of restoration, and the fifth stage, rest. Ah, thank you, Lord. Then, after a period of time, the cycle starts all over again. That's the period of the Judges, a very dark, depressing read, if you read through the book of Judges. But at the same time, I would also say it's encouraging. Because, you know, it's easy to read Judges and think, those idiots, those creeps, what's wrong with them? Can't they cop a clue? Just have them get right with God. And we point our finger at them and we realize, oh, there's like three fingers pointing back at me. It's encouraging that God is so patient and so long-suffering and so loving as even to forgive them over and over and over and over and several more times over again. And I think back to how God introduces himself to Moses. He says, I am the great God, full of compassion and graciousness, ready to forgive, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and goodness. And he proves that in this book of Judges. So it was a time of rebellion, the judges rule. I want to say something else as well about this time. Um, It was followed, or it was after a time of great prosperity. The time of the judges, in this very uh, turbulent time, followed on the heels of great prosperity. They, they had been in Egypt 400 years. Here's the brief history. 400 years. They cried out to God. God sent them Moses, a the deliverer, sort of like the first judge, took them through the wilderness. They complained. Forty years. They finally end up in the promised land. They settle. And, and it's more abundant than they've ever experienced before. Milk and honey. That's the metaphor. It's the land of milk and honey. And you can go to Israel today and see how fertile in so many places it is. They'd never experienced that. Egypt just had the Nile River. It's desert everywhere else. So is the the wilderness wandering. Now they come into this promised land. Beautiful. Things grow. Joshua settles them. Joshua dies. There's the period of the judges. They forget God. And each successive generation gets a little more complacent more at ease. You know it's dangerous to be prosperous and at ease? It's even more dangerous than adversity. Prosperity is more dangerous spiritually than adversity. You know why? It's pretty obvious, right? In adversity you immediately cry out to God, God help! In prosperity we get deceived. We don't think we need God as much. So our prayer life isn't very hot. It's cold. And that's why God in his love says, you know what? I love you so much you need a time of adversity. That's how much I love you. You call that love? Oh, yes. Because right now you're trusting in your prosperity and your own strength, and you know what? I frankly haven't heard from you in a while. I just like to hear your voice. So he'll prescribe an adversity, and you know what? You're on the phone immediately, is God there? In the book of Amos, the prophet said, Woe to those who are complacent in Zion. I grew up in a middle-class American family, and I took so much for granted. Parents provided for everything. And I came to a place, you know, when I was a young teenager, where I just thought, you know, it's all, life owes it to me. My parents owe it to me. And I was just a spoiled brat. And America produces lots of them. It's a great country. It's a prosperous country. God has blessed it. But woe to those who are complacent. Children of Israel falling away from God. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 8. This is a warning they should have heeded at this time. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments. God realized that the danger was posed during a time of prosperity. So it was a time of rebellion, the judges ruled. It was preceded by a time of prosperity. Third, go back to the last verse of Judges, right before verse 1 of of Ruth. Look at the last verse. It shows it was a time of moral anarchy. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just the, the one verse... The last verse of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is pure moral relativism. Classic existentialism. This is what happens when the Israeli ACLU has its way. This is what happens when a nation turns to worrying about private rights rather than the national good and the moral good. This is what happens when people turn away from authority, God's authority, the king's authority. There's a vacuum of leadership that is created. And you have this, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Now, this is the ironic part. The greater the freedom they experienced, freedom meaning nobody's in charge of my life, nobody's the king and ruling over me, I'm making my own choices, my own moral direction, the more freedom they had, the more in bondage they got. And there's a principle to note there. The more, you do as you are pl- uh, the more you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. It just seems to be a basic law of God built into our situation, the human condition. The more you do as you please, I'm my own authority, the more in bondage you become. I've had a book on my shelf for the last few years, and I found it. It was, it was a, really a breath of fresh air. It was done by a group of researchers. They do polls, and I always like polls, but usually they're not that honest. And I found a book. The, the title sold me on it. It's called The Day America Told the Truth. And they conducted a poll in such a way as to guarantee anonymity for those who were taking part in it. They asked him a series of questions and they wrote a book based on it. The Day America Told the Truth by James Patterson and Peter Kim. Here's a small uh, excerpt. Americans are making up their own rules. Now you know that. That's not new news to you. They're making up their own laws. Only 13 percent of us believe in all of the Ten Commandments. Forty percent of us believe in five of the Ten Commandments. It's quite interesting. Well, I like that one, but I don't believe in that one. You know, it's a pick-and-choose thing. And so listen to what these researchers are saying. We choose the laws of God that we believe in. There is absolutely no moral consensus in this country. We are a law unto ourselves. Now, I contend that that is no difference than the last verse of the book of Judges. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. So it's a very similar time. And then uh, last, it was a time of judgment. That's seen in verse 1. There was famine in the land. There was famine in the land. Now it doesn't say so in this verse, but it was a judgment of God. Now, if if you were to look at the natural, simply, at at Israel, Palestine, and the weather, and the, the conditions, you could point to a lot of natural causes for a famine. Drought. Wind. They have things called the shirako, another wind called the humsing that dries things out, parches them. Hail. War causes famine. Sometimes the Philistines would find the crops of the Israelis or the foodstuffs that were stored in barns and burn them or destroy them, confiscate them. Or an enemy would build siege works around a city, cutting off any trade into that city. So you build a wall. The Romans were masters of this. They'd build a wall isolating people within the city. They couldn't go out and they couldn't go to the fields that were usually outside of the city. So they would slowly starve them to death. However, here, we know that it's a time of judgment because God promised the children of Israel when you get into this land, the land that flows with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy 11, he says it's a different land. It's not like Egypt where you were able to water your crops with the Nile. This is a land that drinks in water from heaven. And uh, basically, if you're good and you obey me, I'll bless you with a lot of rain. If you disobey me, I'll cut off the supply of rain and there will be famine in the land. Deuteronomy 28, it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe faithfully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed you shall be in the country. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron, and the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you till you are destroyed. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in. So whatever natural disaster was happening, God is saying, I will take full responsibility for that disaster. I will allow that to happen to you unless you call on my name. Now, conversely, God said, If you obey me and delight in me, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country. You'll plant a little seed and you'll have a huge harvest, etc. It says, Then a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Now, I know that that's an English bad pronunciation. But if you look at it, probably most of you pronounce it that way, so I'm not going to take it any further than that. It says they were Ephrathites. You go, so? I'll tell you why it's important as we work our way into the text. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, most of you know, That when parents pick names for their kids, they usually pick names, A, to express a spiritual religious conviction or wish that they had for that child, or or B, to express a condition that was occurring when that child was born. For instance, we know that when Esau was born to Isaac, Esau came out first and he was all red and hairy. And dad looked at that and said, let's call him Harry, Esau. It's a combination of words that mean red and hairy. Let's call him Harry Redman. That was a condition at his birth. So throughout his life, that was his name. Hey, Harry Redman, how are you doing? Great. Then Jacob came out after him. They were twins. It was the second born. And Jacob came out grabbing Esau's heel. So they called him Yaakov which means heel-catcher, which came to mean deceiver or supplanter, somebody who trips his brother. He proved to live up to his name. And so this is Harry Redman, and this is my other son, heel-catcher. Now, Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Those names I understand. The names of their kids I don't quite understand but I think I, I, I have a pretty good theory. Uh, the word Melon means sickly. Sickly or weakling. And the word chilion means pining or crybaby. Sickly, crybaby. I think these are honest parents, that's all. And probably, here's my theory... It is the reaction, especially of the father, at the birth of his sons. It could be that they really were just sick and, you know, and, and, and crying you know, day and night and, and, and they had a, a physical condition and probably that's why they died. That's what some conjecture, but then Elimelech died as well. So it could be that there was some disease or some condition that happened in Moab. But you know, every parent has a dream of having a perfect child, a perfect baby, a dream, a perfect baby. And one of the morbid fears of couples is that they're going to have a goofy looking baby. Now i got to tell you something, quite honestly, I'll be as honest as this guy was. Every baby when it's first born does not look good, okay? A mother's love can overcome a lot of reality, as well as a father's love. But I've been in a lot of hospital scenes where babies have been born and, you know, I look at them all and I think, okay, well, certain features, but you know what? They all all look kind of raspy, you know, when they're born. And it could be the reaction that, that Elimelech really wasn't around much birth and he saw the first one come out, you know, all with the afterbirth and the, the mucus, the white mucus on the child coming out of the womb, it was a shock to him. And he said, oh no, it happened. Let's call it sickly. <laughs> it's the name of Malon, sickly or sicko. <laughs> and then the other one came out and it was just crying, was just, you know, all, all the time. Maybe the first one wasn't. and It was it's Crybaby, that's his name. I remember when my son was born, um, it was quite a shock because I said, doctor, what's wrong with his head? Because, you know, it looked, it looked very Chiquita-like. <laughs> I was like looking for the sticker. Where... <laughs> he said, don't worry, this is normal. This head looks like that because of the birth canal. I think, well, will he get over that? Of course he'll get over that. <laughs> you did. I said, not really. So, now you're introduced to the whole family. My God is king, pleasant, sicko, and crybaby. This, this is the family. See, it'd make a good TV series, wouldn't it? He went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. Elimelech lived in Bethlehem. And if you've been to Bethlehem, especially during the winter months, it's gorgeous. There's, uh, the, the, it's the breadbasket of Israel. But there was a famine in the land. God was judging that country. And if you walk out of Bethlehem just a little bit to the east as it goes down into the wilderness, you're at about 2,500 feet above sea level overlooking the perch into the wilderness. And you can see from Bethlehem down toward the Dead Sea and across the Dead Sea to the country of Moab, today modern-day Jordan. So Elimelech gets up every day. The ground is parched. The sheep are dying. There's a famine in the land. But he can look over across the Dead Sea on a clear day. It's dry down there. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level, and Moab is 2,500 feet above sea level, sort of uh, the same as where he is in Bethlehem. And he looks over and he sees the, the, the green rolling hills and the Mediterranean breezes blowing the clouds from the sea, and it waters that land, especially that upper high plateau. It goes up to about 3,200 feet, 16 inches of uh, rain annually. The ground is porous, so it produces that nice grass for grazing. And he gets up and he sees on a clear day how beautiful it looks in Moab and how crummy it looks there. So he makes the decision, honey, let's, you know, like the Beverly Hillbillies, we're going to Beverly Hills. We're going to Moab. Put everything in the truck, put it on the camel, let's go for it. So they moved to Moab. What's the problem? Moab was under a curse of God. God promised them that he would bless them if they obeyed him in that land. Remember the tribes that tried to settle on the east of the Jordan? He said, no. He only gave them a small portion up north. Moab was a cursed land because back in Genesis chapter 19, Lot had an incestuous relationship with his two daughters, and the firstborn daughter, once she got dad drunk, had a child by the name of Moab. And the second born had a child by the name of Ammon, and that became the Ammonites and the Moabites, the same territory east of the Dead Sea. They didn't worship God. They worshiped a God called Chemosh, and one of the ways they worshiped the God of Chemosh was by sacrificing their own infant babies as a child sacrifice, human sacrifice, to this God. So God said that Moab was cursed and you couldn't even allow a a Moabite into the sanctuary of God up to the 10th generation. So they shouldn't. They have no reason to go over to Moab. But you know, literally, the grass looks greener on the other side. And so they went. It will be a choice they will regret. Um, I think the choice is made under pressure, as I say, the heat of the moment. Things are tight, got to make a move, got to do something, let's go. So they went, disobeying God. Now, we did the same thing. How many times have we made choices in the the heat of a moment? Or, you know, my finances are bad, I got to do something. So we take out a second loan, or if we can, a third loan. We'll pay it off, I'll do it later. And then the credit cards mount up, and it gets out of control. Instead of waiting on the Lord... Instead of going back to the root cause and saying, Lord, if I'm part of this problem, then I will repent, heal our land. And trusting God in that place of blessing. We get so impatient. Or you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you go, Oh man, I'm getting so old. I'm already 20 years old. And I'm not married i got to do something quick because it's not going to get any better. (laughs) And so with the wrong motivation we may go out and seek someone that the Lord didn't have for us, make the wrong choice. Now I told you that uh, Elimelech means my God is king, Eli, my God, Melech in Hebrew, king, my God is king. And can't you see Elimelech's dad and mom holding little Elimelech? thinking, you know, we trust that God is going to take care of our baby. And Lord, may this child grow up to know, just like our baby dedications, that you are his king. But he didn't live up to his name. Because if God was his king, why go to Moab? Why, why go to the land of a foreign god? Why not just stay in the place God told all of the children of Israel to stay? He wasn't living up to his name. He had the right name, but not the right actions. So we went. Others faced famine in Bethlehem, but they stayed. Now I said, remember the word Ephrathites? An Ephrathite was from an ancient suburb in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was small as it was, but there was this little suburb, this area of Bethlehem, where an elite family lived. They were looked up to. They were pampered. They were respected. They had the name Ephrathite. It would sort of be like being from the east and having the name Rockefeller or Kennedy. There's a certain prestige that comes along with that. But now there's a famine in the land. They're not as respected. They're not as pampered. So they decide to go where it looks good, to Moab. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons Now I'm reading a little bit slowly because I want, there's a lot that happens in these verses. Let it sink in as you read it. Husband died. She's left. She's got her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. There's a lot of heartache compressed in those three short verses. She's over in Moab and she becomes a widow and she becomes childless. That's, that's sorrowful. That's painful. That's why she comes back to Bethlehem at the end of the chapter and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because my, that means bitter because the Lord has made me bitter because of all that has happened. A lot of sorrow there. Now if you were to go back ten years earlier when they arrived at Moab, I bet they felt like they had made a a right choice, don't you think? They saw how green it was, oh this is great, it's beautiful. And they settled in, better job, better life, Uh, four bedroom tent, you know, two camel garage, Uh, upper middle class suburb somewhere in Moab, maybe they even joined the um, Donkey lodge or something like that. You know, they were they were integrated into the community, and they looked at each other and said, "You know, we made the right choice. I'm glad we came over here. I don't know why God cursed this land, and oh, I'm glad that our brethren are still back in Bethlehem, trusting God. But you know what? This is the life. Until the day that the emergency room down at Moab General called and said, Naomi." We have your husband here. He's dead. Then her world fell apart. Here's a man who was seeking his livelihood, and he lost his life in the process. He found a grave where he was trying to build a home. Didn't Jesus say something about that? If you you seek your life, you won't find it. If you lose your life for my sake, then you'll have it. But in seeking his livelihood, he lost his own life. And she is left bereft. She has no sons left. Malon and Chilion have their two wives. There's no sons born to them. To be childless, by the way, was a curse in ancient times, especially if you were Jewish, because you're in danger of losing uh, your inheritance. And, And the family name, if you lose the family name, there's no lineage, there's no inheritance as you go on. So she lost her husband, lost her sons, Uh, lost her land back in Bethlehem because she left, and she could lose her, her family name. She's about to lose it all. All of that to say this, the worst that God has for you is better than the best that the enemy has for you. And the enemy will make it look so green and so lush and so pretty and forget waiting on the Lord and make your own choices. It's about time you take control. What has God ever done for you? And you go, yeah, amen, devil, right on, hallelujah. And then you make some lame choice. Well, what's the worst that could happen? Waiting on, well, I could die. Oh, and go to heaven. Yeah, that's pretty bad, huh? The worst that God has for you is still better than the best. That this world has to offer, or that your enemy, the devil, has to offer. Now, um, if it said the end after verse 5, it'd be very, it'd be just like the book of Judges, it'd be very depressing. But it's just the beginning. We see the providence now of God, we see how God rules and how God overrules human error, human sin. Then she arose with her daughters in law, verse 6 that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Now we're introduced to the Lord after six verses. You know, he's not even mentioned the first five verses. Now God's on her mind. The first five verses is a family's action apart from God. Now, beginning in verse 6, God is mentioned. He's mentioned again in verse 8, then in verse 9, then in verse 13. And he sort of picks up notoriety as the story goes on. God becomes very prominent. First five verses, a family living without God. Now in verse 6, she hears there's no more famine in the land. And she says, God has visited his people. She attributes it to God. She starts thinking now about God. Suffering is a noble thing if it leads you to God, and it should lead you to God. Suffering can be noble if it leads you to God. David, the king of Israel, the writer of the Psalms, said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, as if to mean it was the affliction that brought me back. Martin Luther said, were it not for suffering, I could not understand the Scriptures. So she's now thinking about God. She's saying, let's go back. God's there. God's presence is known. God is blessing the land. And she uses the covenant name for the Lord, Yahweh. I am that I am, that that tetragrammaton, as God revealed himself earlier on. So not all pain is destructive, you see. Satan might intend the pain to destroy you. God uses it to grow you. Hear about the woman in the San Francisco earthquake who walked outside of her house. She looked at it, it had been demolished. When she got home, it was rubble. And she looked around, her whole neighborhood was trash, and she looked around, she smiles. And certain neighbor says, Are you what's wrong with you? How can you smile at a time like this? She said, I rejoice that my God can shake the world. Well, God had shaken Naomi's world. Has God shaken your world? Is He trying to maybe get your attention? Now she hears there's a blessing back in the land and she makes plans to return. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters in law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Verse 7 is a beautiful picture of repentance. It's a very accurate picture of repentance. They reversed directions. They turned all the way around. They went back the way they came. The way they went 10 years ago, they're reversing that decision. They're literally turning around and going right back to the place of blessing, covenant. Turning their back on Moab, turning their back on the mistakes, turning their back on all the pain, going back to Bethlehem. The quickest way to get back to God is to stop what you're doing. Right where you're at, turn around immediately. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Just go right back to God right now. And some people continue. You know, they go, oh, I, they get remorseful. Oh, I really did some dumb things, man. Yeah, no, we well, ought to get back to God. Oh, I, but I, let me just spend a half an hour telling you how bad it is first. Really, it's just I've really done some dumb things. Well, you know, you can. Tr- yeah, but wait, I'm not done yet. Look it. Stop. You know, godly sorrow works. Repentance, the Bible says. Godly sorrow works... You might be sorry, but are you sorry enough with the godly sorrow that you'll stop and turn and go right back to God? Otherwise, it's just hot air. Godly sorrow works repentance. And you know what? You may be a hundred steps away from God. It's only one step back. You turn and God will go, Here I am. I'll receive you. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. She's the mother-in-law. Go back home, in other words, to your, to your real mom. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. In other words, hope you get married, settle down, live a good life. Then she kissed them, And they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. I believe that at this moment, somewhere on the road between Moab and Bethlehem, probably up on that high plateau overlooking the Dead Sea, still in Moab, one of the most important, decisive moments in history was taking place right then and there. I know it was. Now if you lived at that time when they were having this conversation and you could sort of travel around the world, you would find that some interesting trends were taking place. The Neolithic age was drawing to a close. The Golden Age of Greece was just coming into existence as um, Macedonia was being colonized by several of the groups. The Mayan civilizations were coming into fruition down in Central America, South America. The Zhou Dynasty in in China was reaching its pinnacle with its intellectual advancements. All of these tremendous cultural historical changes. And so with all of that important stuff going on, who cares about a couple women having a conversation out in the middle of nowhere? God does. And I'll tell you how important it was. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because it was the city of whom? David. Why was it the city of David? Because David was born there. Why was David born there? David was born there because his grandpa Obed was born there. And Obed was born there because his great-grandmother and great-grandfather Boaz and Ruth got married and settle there. Ruth, this same Ruth. So you see, so much is depending on this decision of Ruth. So much is depending. You see, if Ruth doesn't go with her, you might as well tell the Magi, stay put. Don't even go visit Bethlehem. Nothing's happening. But So much is resting on this little tiny decision. The Bible in the book of Zechariah, says basically, in effect, don't despise the days of small beginnings. Oh, Lord, this is so insignificant, this is so small, nobody cares. Don't be so sure. This could be a mega hinge, little choices that you make could mean so much for a nation, for a family, for the move of God. But Naomi said, now they said, oh, you know, we're going to go with you, we're going to go back. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight, who should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Remember the law according to the Jews is that the living brother raises up seed for the dead brother. Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, why did Naomi say, go back? Go back, go back home. Well, first of all, really to get him to count the cost. It's going to be if you're, if you're going to come with me. It's going to be very difficult. First of all, you're a Moabitus. they don't like you over in Israel. You're an enemy. You're cursed. You know she probably filled him in on what the Old Testament said at this time. Never told him before, but now it's like, eh, go home, have a good life. Count the cost. It's going to be difficult. Of course, Jesus did that. Foxes have holes. He said, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to rest his head. That is what he said to the man who said, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know, we would say, Amen, I see that hand. Jesus said, Not so fast, buckaroo. If you're going to follow me, it's not going to be easy. So Naomi's words is either going to dissuade them and send them back home, or create in them and incite a deeper desire. I'm going to go anyway. And So she said, Go back. Orpah realized the cost very graciously, bowed out, said, you're right, kissed your mother-in-law. It's so much in common in terms of experience and relationship. Both lost husbands. Both lived together for ten years. It was a painful moment. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name the Jews would use for Jewish people, Yahweh, Do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me." When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. So you have Naomi, a grieving widow. She was stripped of everything. You have Orpah, a leaving widow, going back home after realizing the cost. And you have Ruth, a cleaving widow. I'm going to latch on to you. Now when I got married, we put this verse of Scripture on our wedding announcements. It's a great, and I knew, I knew, I knew context and exegesis back then. I knew that it wasn't speaking of marriage, but it's just that it's such a great verse to speak of commitment in a relationship. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. So that was on our wedding invitation. And it is one of the most sublime and most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. It's hard to match it. Poets and, and rhetoricians still look at this in great awe. These are like what Solomon said, words fitly spoken, apples of gold in settings of silver. But it's more than just words. It's a fivefold commitment. And we're going to close with this tonight. Look at it more carefully, beginning in verse 16. It's a steadfast commitment. A steadfast commitment. Entreat me not to leave you. I'm stuck with you. You're stuck with me. Quit telling me to leave. I'm not going to leave. I'm committed. I'm going to stick with you. Hard to, to really come to grips with this. Our culture finds difficulty in lifelong commitment. We do. You know, we measure commitment in microseconds. I was really committed for those five minutes. I really was. I mean, I was into it completely. For those five years, you know, that we were together, we loved each other. We were really committed. She was ready to persevere. Spurgeon used to say, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. (laughs) I love the imagery of that. Giraffes, no problem, but a snail. Better start now. <laughs> by perseverance," the snail. By perse- I, I'm going to stick with you. It was a humble commitment. Where you go, I will go. In other words, you're the leader, I'm the follower. I will surrender my leadership to you. You will make the choices. I'll be the follower in this relationship. Where you go, I will go. It's a humble commitment. It was the same commitment Jesus made to his father. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's the commitment that wives make to their husbands. You may not always be right, but I'm going to take your name, and I'm going to honor you and obey you. It's the commitment that students make toward a mentor. Teach me. Show me. Third, it was an unashamed commitment. Your people will be my people. What, what a big step for this Moabitess to, in effect, and she was, disassociate with her people. And take on a whole new people group. Your people will be my people. Knowing the stigma, the prejudice, the pressure that she is going to face when she's back in Bethlehem. And they say to Naomi, who's this chick? And Naomi says, this chick is my daughter-in-law. She's a Moabitess. It's a lot to face. Your people will be my people. It was an unashamed commitment. Number four it was a spiritual commitment. Your God shall be my God. Ruth was turning her back on everything she had been raised to believe in. Put yourself in her shoes. She was raised probably as a religious person, most were back then, believing in Chemosh, the God of the land, the God of the plateau. She had her own religious underpinnings. Now to cast that religion at her back and embrace something new is what I experienced in a sense. When I said, Mom and Dad, I'm becoming a Christian. What? A what? A Christian. Well, you've always been a Christian. You've been raised in the... No, this is different. I'm I'm not following these ways. I have a relationship with God. It's nonsense. And face it. Traditions are the hardest things to break and to part with. But this is where her commitment reaches the pinnacle. This is her conversion. Your God will be my God. This is the God I will follow personally. This is the conversion. This is where she comes into the relationship with God. Now I personally believe that Ruth noticed the change in her mother-in-law Naomi from verse 6. That's where that started to take place when she heard, it's green over in Bethlehem. There's rain. The famine's over. God has visited his people. And probably telling them the story. You know, we sinned against God. We left a little bit too soon. We didn't trust the Lord. When I'm going to trust him, let's go back. She saw the change in mom, mother-in-law. It made an impact on her. You know, somebody I think wisely put it. If your religion hasn't changed you, you know, it's time to change your religion. And so Ruth did. Your God will be my God. This is the God I want. Fifth, if there was a complete commitment, where you die, I will die. No return ticket. Destroy all bridges that you can't go back over. I'm totally committed. There's a difference between involvement and commitment. A pilot in the war, in World War II was involved. A kamikaze pilot was committed, absolutely, to the end. A cow is involved. A pig is committed. <laughs> a cow gives milk. They make products out of it. But a pig is its absolute, total commitment. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened. When they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This sets up now for chapter 2, and next week I will explain why this kind of morose negative tone when she comes back. But at least she came back. The prodigal is returned. There's a New Testament story of a prodigal son who came to his senses in a far country, you remember, and said, I'm not even worthy to be called my father's servants. I'm going to go to him and ask for forgiveness. Maybe he'll just hire me on as a slave. He'd ruined everything. He lost everything, but he came back. Maybe God's been dealing with you. Maybe it's time for you to come back and to commit yourself to Him. 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 Commit yourself. yourself